HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. So I just wanted to start off today by saying that we are not even in the middle. We are at the beginnings of our summer fundraising drive. And there are some really cool things happening on Charity Buzz. We have these auction items, these lots that you can bid and win these amazing experiential things. Um, one in specific I want to shout out to today is visiting the showroom of Tillit. Now, Till it's been on the food scene before, dig through the archives and check them out. They're an amazing chef's wear company, from aprons to shirts and beyond. But on the Sunday of your choice, the winner and a guest will get an exclusive tour of the Tillett showroom, the home base for hospitality workwear company, and with co-founders Alex McCrary and Jenny Goodman. The, one, the winner will also receive a one-of-a-kind custom-designed apron by Tillett. Now, afterwards, you get to hang out with Chef Simone Tong, and you're going to Meet at the Tillet studio and then get a guide uh, or, or a private tour of Chinatown markets, seeing unique, rare ingredients, flavorful cuisine. Um, and then after that, the culmination is going back to Chef Tong's uh, chef's counter in the East Village, her restaurant, Little Tong. And you get to eat the food of the Yunnan province of China. Now, go to CharityBuzz.com, Heritage Radio, and check out all these lots and bid on that because the more you bid, the, the longer we'll stay on air. So thank you very much for that. And now to the show. Very excited to have Angie Marr here of the Beatrice Inn. Now, this storied West Village chop house, the Beatrice Inn, was 
first a New York Prohibition era speakeasy in the 1920s, then 50-year run as an Italian red sauce joint. Then it became this legendary nightclub, later revived by Vanity Fair's Graydon Carter. Now, its fabled fate seemed kind of at its end uh, about a decade ago. Well, that was until Angie here came aboard with the grandiose visions of a meat-centric mecca. Her training in Hobie's butchery and time as a sous chef at April Bloomfield's Spotted Pig helped her dream up dishes like 45-day dry-aged burgers, roast duck flambe, smoke rabbit for two, and, of course, the 160-day whiskey-aged tomahawk ribeye. Now, you do say, at the end of the day, vegetables are never going to replace meat. Why is that, Angie? <laughs> I just don't believe it's going to happen. You know, I am, I am such a meat lover. I, I wake up thinking about it. I go to sleep thinking about it. And, uh, you know, clearly it's, it's what we cook at the Beatrice. It's, it's what I love. It's so funny. You grew up in Seattle in kind of a Jewish enclave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Seattle as, you know, Pike Place, seafood, salmon. Was, was this not part of your repertoire? No, I grew up with T-bone steaks. Uh, you know, on our table every night at six o'clock. My mom grew up bouncing back and forth between the UK and Oxford. So, you know, I have a, I have a huge affinity for meat pies and shepherd's pies and, and, you know, that's just how we grew up. So that's, uh, you know, I I do love sushi, um, but we're definitely a meat family. Yeah. Well, and you're also a family of restaurant tours. Your, your, your aunt was the infamous Ruby Chow and pioneered Mm -hmm. Chinese food in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, she did. So d- talk to me about that restaurant and kind of growing up in that atmosphere. Well, you know, I, I obviously wasn't around, uh, you know, when when the restaurant was at its heyday. But, um, you know, having having my Auntie Ruby in my life, she you know, I grew up down the street from her. Um, so that sense of hospitality, that sense of, you know, I was at her house all the time. Um, and, you know, she was cooking or her husband was cooking. And it, it really helped, you know bring me up. I, you know, they say it takes a village and, and my family definitely was that. Yeah. Well, what, what were the dishes that fed that family, that village? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, she used to make the most insane, uh, they're cold noodles with just like sliced ham and scallions and sesame oil. And it's one of those things that I remember as being like salty, but pure and refreshing and, um, you know, really rich without being heavy on your stomach. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my favorite dishes still. But- you know, with with those noodles and mm-hmm. uh, with this kind of British expat, you know, uh, cuisine, was food something that you were striving towards? Was it, was it something that you wanted to make a career? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I I grew up, um, you know, with uh, my parents being like, you know, go to college, you know, get the four hundred one k, get a great job, you know, get married, you know, all of that stuff. And, um, you know, I was, I was on that path for a long time. I, I was doing commercial real estate, uh, in Los Angeles, um, for 10 years and, and I wasn't really fulfilled. So for me, you know, food was, it was never what I wanted to do. It was always a love of mine. It was always a passion, but it was never what I wanted to do. It's not what I set out to do. Um, so I, you know, I left, I left my career in, in real estate. I traveled for a long time and, and, you know, finally when I was traveling, I, I realized that I should be cooking. Yeah. Was it a specific bite, a specific restaurant? Oh, yeah. 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 What was it? Uh, so I was in Sevilla and there was a Siberian pork shoulder and I had never eaten pork like that before. Um, you know, as you know, in Europe, everything is, you know, especially pork, you get rare and it's like dark and beefy and, you know, so, so beautiful. So I had this Iberian pork shoulder and it was just rare, just seared. 
And that was the bite that like changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like, it was over for yeah. me. But yeah. I mean, aside from such a simple cooking technique, it's the quality of meat. It's completely different. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, how, how do you come back to the U.S. having learned something mm-hmm. like that and, and kind of take that and transport it back. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, as I'm sure you did, grew up in that era of, you know, pork is the other white meat, you know, and, and it's all the color and flavor and fat had been bred out of all of these, these breeds that we've been eating. Um, so for me to be in Spain and, and to have this pork that's like dark and beefy and, you know, fatty and delicious, that really like changed my perspective on food. Um, so, you know, I, I came back to the States. I, I you know, learned, you know, I started cooking and, you know, it's really carried over through what we do now, which, you know, is, um, you know, I think important. I, I'm definitely not one of these chefs that's like, you know, local, sustainable. I'm only going to use things within X amount radius. I actually don't care where it comes from. I don't. You yeah. know, I just want the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about the best. Mm-hmm. The, the best way about learning about the best is, is, is going to the source. And yeah. so you did that by learning how to butcher. Yeah. So talk to me about where you did that and why that was an inevitable step towards mm. being the meat-centric restaurant you are. Yeah. Well, you know, I I was working for Andrew Tarlow at Reynard and, um, you know, their their butcher at the time uh, who was French-trained under Yves-Marie Le Bourdignac, who I went to go meet a bit later on in life. Um, you know, I used to spend my nights in the butcher room with him, just butchering. And originally I wanted to learn how to butcher because, you know, clearly if we were cooking meat, what better way is there to learn how to cook, you know, different cuts, um, you know, without knowing where it comes from on the animal. Is it a hardworking muscle? Is it, you know, a muscle that is less used? You know, what the, what the best cooking technique is for those. Um, so that's why I started, that's why I wanted to learn how to butcher. And then it really transformed into this, you know, great love that I have. It's, it's still, you know, to this day, it's one of those like very Zen meditative like things that I do on Mondays. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I learned a little bit from him, um, and that kind of, you know, broke me in there. And then I, I, uh, I became very good friends with Pat Lafreda. And so he taught me the rest. Well, what is that? I, and I'm going to butcher this and I don't mean that as a pun. <laughs> I guess I do. Uh, there was that quote in, in Tommy boy, you know, the Chris Farley movie is like yeah. the, the best way to uh, know where a steak come from is stick your head up a, a cow's ass, <laughs> but you know, I'll, I'll trust the butcher's uh, right. uh, word. Um, Befriending a butcher like mm-hmm. Pat Lafredo, what did it give you access to? What did it give you insight into in the meat industry? Yeah, uh, you know, Pat has been a tremendous uh, force in my life. He's been a great mentor, a great friend, um, and you know, he is uh, kind of that person in my life. Um, you know, since I got into this industry, that's that's always pushed me to do bigger and better things. Um, you know, he. He's, he's wonderful like that. So, um, you know, having, having that person around and having that knowledge of, you know, not only, um, beef, but, you know, other animals, the sourcing of, of everything, but also, um, you know, really how to run a business in this industry. It's, it's been incredibly valuable. You know, even before that, uh, April Bloomfield kind of instilled this idea of simplicity and love of that simplicity mm. into you. And, 
now you're very over the top. There's flamboyance. There's mm. fur coats. <laughs> yeah. w- w- what is the uh, essential? Well, that's always been there. <laughs> yeah. so. <laughs> but, but, but what are those small, very essential core things yeah. about cooking meat that people either do improperly or that you think people should yeah. look towards doing? You know, I, working for April was, um, you know, I, I always say this, I think it was, it was a very important year of my life um, because, you know, she didn't, she didn't teach me how to cook, but she taught me how to run a Michelin starred restaurant and it, you know, that my time at the spotted pig, you know, it gave me a dedication to perfection that I didn't realize even existed before. Um, you know, not so much simplicity, but you know, again, a dedication to perfection. That's what I really learned there. Um, and it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look at a place like Beatrice and, and there were lots of different types of dedication there, you mm-hmm. know, as a speakeasy during you know, prohibition as this red sauce Italian place, as this nightclub. Mm. Um, what is it? What did it feel like the first time you walked in? And maybe that was before you were even working there. And yeah. what does it feel like now? Well, you know, when it was a nightclub, I was never cool enough to get in. So <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. But, uh, but I did, I did go to, um, I did go when the chef, uh, who was there before me was cooking there. It was a very different feeling. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, that idea of what the restaurant was, you know, is, is vastly different from from my idea of what a restaurant should be. And, and not saying that one or the other is wrong. It was just different. Yeah. I mean, Graydon Carter, the very mm-hmm. illustrious figure here in New York and Vanity mm-hmm. Fair, uh, uh, obviously there was a sense of style, a sense of mm-hmm. decorum there. Uh, what was that and why was that uncomfortable? Yeah, it wasn't uncomfortable for me. I, um, you know, it's just... It, I. Graydon is fantastic. You know, he he and his wife have been so supportive. And, and you know, through um, my time working for him um, to purchasing the restaurant to relaunching it, they've been nothing but fantastic to me. So, you know, I I wouldn't say that the restaurant was uncomfortable at all. I just, it, it's vastly different than what yeah. I have, you know. Um, but, you know, I think that restaurant was very much about the scene versus about the food. Um, before, and I, I think that was really evident in in P. Wells' original review of the restaurant um, that it was about the scene, and it just it wasn't there wasn't a focus on food there. Um, and so when I took it over, you know that's that's what I was, um, you know, really fighting against was you know making it more about the food and having the public eye really switch its focus from this is a restaurant to see and be seen to wait this is a restaurant that yeah you can see and be seen but you can also have a really great meal here yeah um, you know so I I think that when we bought it um, and you know it's so funny because you know I there's still even to this day you know forget all the the great times we review and forget the food and wine, forget all that. There's still people that I talk to. They're like, Oh yeah, Graydon owns that restaurant. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> so, or they, or they think it's a nightclub. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting. But I mean, it must be hard. Well, on, on, you know, two platforms, one to take over a restaurant that just got a zero mm-hmm. star review, eventually getting a two star from mm-hmm. the St. Pete Wells. Um, but taking one scene and shifting it to another, like you said, yeah. changing perspective completely. It's creating a culture. It's, it's creating a culture and, and you know, it's, it, you're right. It's very, very difficult. You know, I've, I've opened restaurants before and, and, you know, where we're building a kitchen and starting from scratch and it's essentially a blank canvas. Um, but to take over an existing restaurant that has an existing culture an existing persona, um, and, 
being able to change it and rework it to be what you want to be is it's it's tremendously challenging. You know, I mean, as I mentioned, I, <laughs> I think we're still in the works of doing that. So, well, as Pete Wells said, it's a place where you go when you want to celebrate your life as an animal. Yeah. And on that, Best we're going <laughs> to, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity. Water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it, it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in, in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Angie Marr of The Beatrice Inn. Now, th this is literally a mecca for meat now, but it kind of all started with your mother's Sunday roast. Yeah. So, um, well, my mom and my dad, actually. So my mom, you know, grew up going back and forth between Taipei and the UK. So, um, you know, she's got that, that Sunday lunch culture. Um, and my dad, you know, he, we grew up with him just cooking every Sunday and we had Sunday suppers. Um, so for me, you know, I, I wanted to, to do something at the Beatrice and have it be an homage to them. You know, so much of our food is about, what I grew up eating, um, or my travels or, you know, just tied to food memories. And that's really what Sunday roast is. So we don't do eggs. There's no scrambled eggs on the menu. There's no poached eggs. Like there's, there's no nothing. vegetables on the no. menu. <laughs> no, there's no vegetables on the menu. Um, I mean, we have caviar. I think that's like the only egg that anybody should be eating on yeah, a Sunday. The vegetable of the sea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> um, but you know, so we, we carve prime ribs table side and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's really fun and, and different, especially yeah. in that neighborhood. And every day is kind of like Sunday because mm -hmm. a roast is this triumphal <laughs> centerpiece that, you yeah. know, everyone 
kind of gawks around and yeah. then shares. But you're you're doing this every night. And let, let's talk about some of these menu items. Yeah. The 45-day-old dry-age burger Mm -hmm. is now, unfortunately, a staple for you. You can never get rid of that. I can never get rid of it. (laughs) But why why these large dishes? Like, why these things to share? What does Mm -hmm. that mean to you? You know, I have never been a person that's, you know, we're going to go out to dinner and you're going to get an appetizer and I'm going to get an appetizer and you're going to get an entree and I'm going to get an entree. Um, That wasn't how I was raised. You know, food should be shared. And, you know, my cousin, who is my business partner, um, you know, she and I grew up around a big round table with a lazy Susan in the middle of it. And my dad would just put a ton of food down and we would all share it. And that's, you know, that's how I think food should be eaten. Um, which is why we serve the food at the Beatrice, you know, the way it is, is, you know, you can come in if, if you want to just, you know, have your own entree and it's, it's, you know, this milk braised pork shoulder. It's fine. You can do that because it's, you know, the appropriate size for one person, um, as are several other dishes on the menu. But, you know, how I would love for people to experience it is, you know, to come in and get an array of dishes and try everything because that's, you know, that's the beauty of food. Yeah. You just need a crowd. I mean, yeah. you need that same scene that you had before at the restaurant, which obviously you have surpassed now. Uh, you need a large table aside from I, a lazy Susan to, I, I, to yeah. order off this menu. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, um, you know, I always think the menu is best, best done. Um, you know, if you were really going to try and do everything, I think, you know, a table of like four to five people, that's a good amount. Um, but you know, we've got such a great clientele that comes in and it's like, you know, two tops and, um, you know, they'll perhaps have, uh, you know, a pork chop and, um, you know, and some caviar or some oysters. And it's, you know, it's all definitely very shareable. Um, you know, and then I've got a great clientele too that's just, you know, single diners at the bar. Mm-hmm. So what we really tried to do with this restaurant is make it approachable for everybody because at the end of the day, I think that food, you know, is kind of a great equalizer, brings everybody together. And that's one of the reasons why I do surf things family style. But at the same time, you know, it's not an occasion restaurant. It's a restaurant where the majority of my clientele is there between three to five times a week, you know, and um, whether it's they're there by themselves, you know, at the bar, you know, having an oxtail or they come in with a group of, you know, five or six on a Saturday night. It doesn't matter. It's like, you know, we've we've been very fortunate to have um, have obtained a really, really great great group of regulars. And it's one of those things, once you first taste a 160-day dry-aged or whiskey-aged mm. tomahawk ribeye, you're going to want to come back three to five times a so. week. <laughs> I hope so. What is it about that steak, about that process that's mm. so emphatically Beatrice in? Yeah. Well, you know, we are the only restaurant in the United States to be implementing this technique. Um, it's something that I'm so proud of. I think it's really exciting. And, uh, you know, that steak is... In essence, it is so different because it's, you know, you've got this big, ridiculous hunk of meat, you know, and I think Pete Wells said it was like the size of a cricket bat, um, <laughs> which it is. And um, you've got all these flavors though, because you've got the dried beefy flavor that you would normally get. But then because we age it in whiskey um, and we use a French single malt whiskey um, by Bren, uh, who 
is it's a woman by the name of Allison Patel. She lives in our neighborhood. She's fantastic. But her whiskey is aged in cognac barrels. So it's a little bit different than a lot of American whiskeys. And you've got sweetness. You've got vanilla. You've got oak. Um, and it almost adds more of a, a feminine touch, you know, to to the meat. So it's incredibly nuanced. Yeah. I mean, femininity, uh, when you talk about meat... Mm-hmm. Is is it a funny thing that you have to kind of play up this role like you are the female meat cook or? You know, I don't think I've ever played that up. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that I am. Everybody always asks me, you know, they say, what, you know, uh, how is it for you, you know, being in this like meat centric world, which is typically male dominated? How is it for you? I'm like, it's food, food. Mm hmm wouldn't matter. Like it really wouldn't matter if I was a man or a woman or whatever. It's, you know, that's one of the great things that I love about food is it's genderless it's raceless you know it's really great food it's just really great food yeah Yeah. it it does have its genres though and diets and Mm -hmm. there are these niches and meat itself has found its way into paleo Mm -hmm. or paleo and meat Mm -hmm. you know happen at the same time offal also another thing that's always uptrending uh how do you feel about meat kind of being generalized or sectionalized or kind of put underneath these titular headers you know i um (laughs) i don't really pay attention to any of that it's you know it's kind of like how you know you asked me a little bit earlier like where do i go to eat like i don't go to eat i just i kind of am very much you know we cook our food and our food is our food and that's it um you know i don't I think that trends come and go. I think, you know, paleo, it comes and goes. Yeah, I make jokes about how, you know, my food's got to be healthy. It's like fits into the paleo diet, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, really, I think what's important is just for for our food and, you know, my team and the just to keep the food that we cook really genuine and not try and fit into any of those roles, but just to really be what we are. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's fascinating to read the menu because there are things that are very traditionalist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, of that realm of steakhouse, chop mm-hmm. house, French cuisine. And you do a champion, uh, champion yeah. de tete. Um, then at the other side you do, you know, like roast duck flambe, mm-hmm. uh, are these in like historical recipes that you're trying to revive or what are these new ideas that you're trying to cast upon what meat can be? Yeah. You know, I, um, I never really think that there are new ideas. I think that, you know, when people say, you know, is art, is food art or is it craft? You know, my answer is always craft. Um, You know, there are no really true, you know, brand new ideas that no one's done before. Um, I think that, you know, especially with cooking, the majority of it is, you know, taking an idea that we've tasted before or read about, um, you know, and really refreshing it and putting it, you know, putting our spin on it. Um, so Champagne de Tête is one of them. You know, it's it's such a traditional dish. It's something that I love. Um, and ours is, you know, traditionally it's done with lamb, but we actually do it with beef. Um, and we do it with beef cheeks and, you know, veal head. And you've got like all the, you know, bits in there from the tongue and the cheeks. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, but we try and make our food fun and approachable. Um, you know, there are obviously steakhouses, the traditional steakhouses. You order your meat and then you've got your sides, whether it's like cream spinach or, you know, potatoes or whatever. Um, 
our food is tremendously different in the fact, you know, from other chop houses that, you know, when you come in and eat, you're going to have a fully composed idea. You know, it's, it's, it's a fully composed dish. It's a fully composed finished thought or idea, you know, on our plate. Um, and, and that I think is really fun. And there's also sides of bone marrow creme brulee. There are sides of bone marrow creme brulee. You know, you know, talking about your, your, your British heritage, I know you're going over to London mm-hmm. to do a pop-up, yeah. Meetopia as well. Um, what ideas are in the U.S. or in Beatrice in specifically that you're hoping mm-hmm. to export back home to the U.K. and <laughs> kind of change the idea of what Sunday roast might be? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm really excited to cook our food in, in London. We're going to be taking over um, a restaurant space called Carousel, um, and we'll be cooking there from August 14th. Uh, through the 26th, I believe. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm tremendously excited about doing over there is, uh, you know, like our, our take on beef. I'm, I'm excited to work, um, work with, you know, the breeds of beef that I can't necessarily get here in the States. Uh, you know, we're going to be working with some old dairy cows and some Galician breeds and, um, red Devon and, and, you know, breeds of beef that I find tremendously fascinating that we just cannot get in the States. So for me, it'll be, you know, hopefully a, a learning experience as well, um, to be able to work with these animals. And also, you know, it's such an honor to be able to share, um, you know, what it is that we do at the Beatrice with everybody there. Yeah. And if you have not shared in the revelry, that is the new Beatrice Inn with Angie Moore. Please go there today and bring a couple friends or eat yeah. solo at the bar <laughs> and take some home or eat it all. It is one of those places where you'll just be face down in food and yes. enraptured <laughs> by what she's doing. Thank you again for being on air. You've Thank been listening you. to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Bob's Red Mill for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Tattashore for engineering. And if you haven't yet, become a member. Donate today. Cheers. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.